Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud with me, your host, Jackie Shea. This is a place to relate to the darkest days and be inspired by ultimate triumph. Each week, I interview a brave guest who has extensive experience with illness and or wellness, and hopefully we will leave you inspired to warrior on, highly informed about something new, and connected to a tribe of amazing humans. Because the only way out is through, but it helps to have a tribe walking with you. Hi guys, welcome back to a new episode. This week I have a very special guest and dear friend, Megan Bowler. I've known Megan a long time. In fact, I used to babysit her sweet daughter like eight years ago already. Megan is a victim and a survivor of physical and sexual assault and violence. She's been healing out loud about her with her story for 20 years. Her story is so wild and so inspiring. In this episode, we discuss what actually happened, how she made it through the early stages, and how she got free from the power he had over her, and how she eventually came to total forgiveness. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me at Shayja on Instagram for wellness fun and weekly challenge updates. This week, it's a really cool one, guys, about fears and gratitude. Follow me at JackieShea.com to see more of what I provide and join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook community. All right, let's hit this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Happy Monday. So excited today. I have with me Megan Bowler, an old dear friend who's a mother, daughter, wife, sister, teacher, and leader. Hi, Megan. Hi, Jackie. Yay. I'm so glad you're <laughs> you're on and, and you're willing to do this on this very vulnerable, vulnerable topic. And you guys, one of the reasons I asked Megan to come on is because she posted on Facebook um, about a, a, a very serious trauma that happened to, to her, what, 20 years ago? Almost 20 years ago. 20 years yep. ago. And I realized that Megan has absolutely been healing out loud the whole time I've known her. Megan talks about her trauma very openly and talks to a lot of different people uh, who have similar traumas and um, talks about it on social media. And uh, so I realized that she was perfect to come on Healing Out Loud. Oh, thank you, Jack. I'm so honored to be here. I love what you are doing with this podcast. I think it's so important and so powerful. Oh, thank you so much. So you are a victim of assault. Will you tell us your story? Yes. Yeah. And it's so strange. I actually haven't told the details of this story in a while. And I thought, gosh, I wonder if I'm going to remember and I think a lot of victims worry about that sometimes, like, oh, I'm going to forget the details. And, you know, as I sat to think this morning, I was like, nope, I remember all the details. Those will never go away. Mm. It doesn't matter. I'm sure. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many years it's been. The story is still, uh, you know, clear as day in my mind. Um, but I think, I mean, before I really jump into the details, I think I, I think it's also important just to just to stay in the very beginning that, you know, each person's experience is very different. And I, I appreciate that you really honor that on your podcast and understanding that this is my own experience and this is how I healed and everybody heals in a different way. So I got lots of, I've had so many suggestions over the last 20 years and some of them worked and some of them didn't. And some of them work really well for other people that don't work for me. Um, and so, you know, I have no like, 
amazing miracle answers. Thank you for saying us, that. Yeah. None of us do. None of us have the amazing miracle answer. And I think that's part of why healing out loud can be so frustrating is because there isn't just one go-to answer. All of us are on this journey of trying to figure out what is going to work for us. Absolutely. Um, it's so true. So, it's true with yeah. illness too, you know? Uh, yes, a hundred percent. So, and I, cause I was going to say that I think that it's important to preface my story by just saying a little bit about where I was physically and mentally in my own body before I was even traumatized. So <clears throat> I was in my early twenties. Um, my late teens and early twenties were very tumultuous. I mean, I don't know anybody really who had like an awesome end of teenage transition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'd already been diagnosed as a, uh, with depression and anxiety and I, I had already battled with some, um, eating and body image issues, like not, nothing severe enough to warrant treatment, but I was, you know, I was having troubles like in that whole area of self-care and self-love. And, um, I was definitely self-medicating myself, um, for years. And so when this happened, I was this transitioning into adulthood and I was at a very vulnerable point in my life. Um, And so not only did I experience this big trauma, but for me, it was like a significant turning point in my life. Like I can say that there was pre-assault Megan and then there is post-assault Megan and there's two very different experiences. And so what happened was uh, it was a Monday afternoon. It was 2.30 in the afternoon. It was a bright, sunny day in Portland, Oregon, which is very unusual. We don't get a lot of sun. (laughs) (laughs) I remember being, I was so full of gratitude. I was moving into a brand new house, uh, a brand new house to me. Um, I hadn't really had my own place to live for a while. I'd been living just sort of in people's I I was living in a a room in somebody's house, you know, so this was the first time in a while I was going to have a a stable home that I could say was mine. And I had a roommate um, and I just felt very, very, very hopeful. And I remember waking up that morning, being really excited to move into my house, picking out my outfit that I was going to wear for moving because it's important. Um, (laughs) And it actually did play an important role later in the story. I chose to wear wear overalls, which I don't normally wear, but I was like, this would be a great thing to carry boxes in. (laughs) (laughs) So I wore overalls, not having any idea that that was going to help me later on. So I was moving into the house. It was beautiful day. I was carrying boxes in and out and, um, on my way in and out from carrying boxes from the, from the driveway, a man stopped me like on the street. He was on the sidewalk And my first instinct was to be afraid of him. Um, He just, I just got that vibe of this guy is up to no good. And then immediately, immediately this louder voice came into my head saying, how dare you be afraid of somebody in this neighborhood? You are, you're so stereotypical. Like I can't believe that you would think that about him. Like you can't just jump to conclusions about people. And I, I immediately started bashing myself for having had this fear reaction to him. Um, and he asked me directions to somewhere and I immediately responded, you know, Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm new. I'm just moving in. I don't know this neighborhood. Fantastic. So I gave him that information. <laughs> um, and I was super friendly. Like I overcompensated for my fear by being really nice to him. And he kind of grumbled something and moved on. And I didn't think anything of it. And then I was moving in and out, you know, boxes in and out. 
And then it, I don't know how much time went by and he was there again. And he asked me if he could use my phone. He needed to make a phone call. I was like, sure. So I came outside and, and you know, gave him my, uh, you know, pulled the phone out to the front porch and let him make a phone call. And then back when went, I, this is back when there were landlines. <laughs> Uh, there were landlines. I didn't even have a cell phone, Jackie. No R- cell phone. I had a pager. <laughs> right, right. Of course. Yeah, no cell phone. Didn't own one. Um, did have a phone. And so he made a phone call, went on his way. I thought nothing of it. And I was sitting in the front room of the house on that landline phone. I was actually on hold with like the electric company because there was something wrong with the electrical outlets. And I was sitting crisscross on the floor with the phone in my hand. And I looked up into the front doorway and he was standing in the, in the open. I left the door open. He was standing in the open doorway of my house. And I just looked up at him and I smiled this big smile. And I said, Hey, do you need something else? And all I remember is him just shaking his head at me, shaking his head. No. And then lunging for me. And he, um, you know, he tackled me to the ground uh, there, I mean, I peed myself. I didn't, I had no idea what was going on. Um, I went into total shock and he started sort of talking to me. We were sort of tumbling around the room and, uh, uh, he was telling me all these things that he was going to do to me, that he was going to, that I was, you know, he was cursing me out calling me all sorts of names and telling me how stupid I was. And, that he was going to kill me and he was going to dump me in a river and my friends were never going to find me. And he was just going on and on about all these things that he was planning on doing to me. And I realized that he had this piece of glass in his hands and he kept coming at my neck with a piece of glass and scratching my neck as if he was wanting to cut it, but didn't. So At this point, I'm starting to get a little bit of my wits back, I guess, a little bit more of like awareness of what's going on. And I had another instinct. I think learning to listen to my instincts has been a major part of my recovery. And one of my instincts was this guy actually doesn't know what he wants to do. Like he's saying all of these things, but he isn't really quite sure what to do with me. So I started talking with him (laughs) and I thought, I just had this weird thought. Like if I keep talking with him, then he can't kill me because we're having a conversation. I think that's what I was thinking. (laughs) Mm. So I, I don't remember exactly what we said, but I just remember that I started talking with him. Like, well, I don't know, asking him questions like, well, why would you do that? Or, you know, I, I remember telling him that my friend was coming because I had a roommate and my roommate was supposed to be there moving boxes in. I said, she's going to show up. Like, you don't want to be here doing this when she shows up. And, you know, he would respond with, oh, they're not going to show up. Or if they do, you'll be gone. And I'll dump. He kept telling me he was going to dump my body in the river anyway. And he, he kept, we kept wrestling and he kept kind of getting on top of me and then looking at me and, with this look of what, uh, like, what should I do now? And, um, I kept wondering to myself, why is he not raping me? Like I thought this, that was sort of where this was going to go. And I couldn't figure out why he wasn't just doing that. And it wasn't until retrospect and the help of my mom, actually, that I don't know if this is the case or not, but I think he didn't know what to do with my overalls. Mm. So he couldn't get the access that he needed without letting me go. And I was fighting back. So right. I, 
I just have a feeling that that was kind of, he was confused as to what to do at this point because he didn't know he couldn't anyway, he didn't know what to do. Is that really you know? like what's going through your head at this moment? Just, just you're in such shock that it's just what to do next. And you're not even really feeling the fear. And because you're, oh yeah, I wasn't feeling, I wasn't feeling fear at all. Wow. Not at all. Which is so strange. Yeah. I mean, it's such a primal I've never felt such a primal feeling before. Um, I know it just sounds so bizarre, but after he tackled me and I wet myself, it's like, that's like the initial reaction that the body has. And then I was in full fight mode, you know, and I wasn't feeling anything. I wasn't even feeling pain because I didn't know until afterwards at all the extent of my injuries. So I wasn't feeling any pain. I wasn't feeling any pain when he would cut with the glass. I didn't feel any pain when he hit me. I, I wasn't feeling anything. I was just there. Wow. I was just there. And I was just trying to figure out what I was supposed to do next. <laughs> right. And I was having weird random thoughts too. Like um, thoughts did, did come to mind. Like, why is this happening right now? Um, I'm, I'm kind of getting my life together. I'm, I'm, I'm taking steps towards, you know, being a, a healthy young adult and, and this is happening. Like, I don't understand why this is happening to me right now. Um, so I was also, I do remember having those thoughts, like, wh- why is this going on right now? This isn't supposed to be happening. Right. Um, and so how did it, how did it, uh, end? How did it end? So we continued to sort of do this like wrestling dance around the floor where we would, he would tackle me. And I think he was trying to figure out how to get my overalls off um, without letting me go. And then we'd have conversations. And then at one point he was on top of me and he put the piece of glass down and he actually strangled me. And um, that is the moment where I really thought, I truly thought that that, I thought, okay, this is it. Now we're, this is it. And I um, started to lose consciousness. And in that moment, I sort of had a, I guess what people would call a spiritual experience. It wasn't like a, it wasn't anything like I wanted, I expected it would be. (laughs) So he was strangling me. I was losing consciousness and I felt the presence. I suddenly like in the other room felt the presence of something else. And I, I just remember reaching out for it with my left hand and reaching and reaching and reaching towards the kitchen, which was uh, real, realistically empty, but I felt like there was something there and saying in my mind, so that's something like, if you're here to take me, please take me now. And if you're not here to take me, then please just make this stop. And the next thing I knew we were rolling around again. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, I didn't die. <laughs> So then that like that instinct came back in again. Okay, so now what are we going to do? What's going to happen? And we ended up sort of back in the front room and he got me up like he was holding onto my shoulders. He like he got me up and he was kneeling down and he said, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. I was like, oh, all right. (laughs) And he said, he said, you are going to give me oral sex and then I'm going to leave you alone. And I just remember thinking, this is so bizarre like you've made all these threats to me you've strangled me you've cut my neck and now you're just saying that you want a blowjob I don't understand (laughs) and I actually remember feeling a wave of relief like 
oh, well, if that's what you want, let's get this over and done with. That was honestly my thought, which is really unusual for me as a person because I had have a very interesting personal relationship to my own sexuality. Like I am not an overly sexual person. So sex is not something that just comes easily to me. And oral sex is definitely not something that comes easily to me, nor was something that I came easily to me before this happened, if that makes sense. But in the, in the moment I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. I'll do that. That's okay. (laughs) We're good. Like if you will truly leave, then this is probably the best outcome I could expect from this whole situation. And so he took his pants off or took his pants down. He actually, I felt him release from me and he took his pants down and I heard the car pull up into the driveway and it was my friend and her brother coming to move her stuff into the house. And then I remember the next thing I just remember is him really like leaning back and backing away from me. And I just took off out the front door of the house. Um, I came, apparently I came running down the front steps. They were starting to get out of the car. I was like screaming at them to get back into the car, jumped into the car with them. They had, of course, no idea what was going on. Um, and we backed out of the driveway and drove away um, and ended up at a gas station down the street. Oh. Um, so that's how it ended. <laughs> um, and my best estimate is that it was about 10 minutes. It was not, it was not a like quick and done thing. Uh, but it was, you know, from the moment he tackled me in the beginning. to when we got it, when I got away, it was probably about 10 minutes. And, so yeah, and, that's it. That's- <laughs> <laughs> and the saying, saying, how did it end is really not appropriate because this kind of thing never ends. Right. So Correct. you, Correct. you have this, this you know, stayed with you and haunted you and you did a ton of healing from it. And today, what I know of you is that it doesn't, it doesn't control you um, at all. You're obviously able to talk about it. I, since I've known you, which has been over a decade, uh, I haven't watched this control you. Um, You got married, you've had kids, you've lived a big full life. So, that's the end end, I guess. That's 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 <laughs> the other side. But from this moment, from the gas station for the next number of years, can you describe some of the things that that happened to you in your uh, body? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I feel like my whole life changed at that moment. I had always, I mentioned that I self-medicated, like I always was a super emotionally sensitive person. Um, I like you as an actor because I loved being able to pretend to be other people because I wasn't me. And I had a terrible time feeling my own feelings. I could feel someone else's feelings really well. Um, And I had a terrible time feeling my own feelings. And in this incident, what happened for me is that like my emotional bottom of my well like dropped out. I was feeling emotions at an intensity level that I didn't even know was possible. And there was no way around them. There was nothing I could possibly do to not feel the feelings that I was having. Right. Um, When did the fear finally flood? Did the fear come flooding when you got to the gas station? Yes, that's what I was just going to say. The fear came flooding in when I got to the gas station. Um, I was, 
I just remember being dazed and I was so dazed. I was so confused. I caught a glimpse of myself like in a rear view mirror or something. And I was shocked because I had a black eye. I had a cut under my eye. I had like uh, scratches all over my neck. I was bleeding down my neck. Um, I mean, I look, I mean, it looked terrible and I hadn't, I was like, how did that, I don't remember feeling any of that. It looked very painful. And I remember I didn't feel any of that. And I, I started getting very scared. Like, is he, is he going to come here? Like, is he going to follow us? Or, you know, he, I, I've seen him, he wasn't wearing a mask. So is he going to come follow us here? And one of the, one of the people in the car, I don't know if it was the friend or the brother got out, went inside and called 911. And I remember the look of the lady at the, <laughs> in the gas station, he's on the phone and he's, she's listening to him. And I remember her look out into the parking lot and look me in the eye in the, in the, in the truck and just give me this look of total horror. Like, <sighs> I cannot believe this is happening. And you're sitting right there. <laughs> like right. It was so, it was, all of it was so surreal. And the, the ambulance showed up and, you know, I went to the hospital and, all of that is a daze. Like they stitched me up. I was really scared. I didn't know what was supposed to happen next. I didn't know everything was in flux. Like I even started thinking about, well, what about my stuff? And what about my car? Like I left my car there and I have boxes there and where am I going to sleep tonight? And I didn't know where any of that was going to happen. And the police, you know, the police were there and they, they very gently started me, started talking me through things. Somehow they got my dad on the phone and I can remember talking to my dad in the hospital room, um, on the phone. And he, um, I mean, I, as a parent, I don't ever want to get that phone call. Right. <laughs> and he, uh, I just remember him telling me how much he loved me and that he and my mom were getting in a car. They lived in California that they were getting in the car and that they were driving. They weren't even going to wait for a flight. Um, and that they were driving and they would be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the police, the police let me know that the man actually stole my car. Um, so my keys had been on the floor of the house. And so uh, apparently afterwards he picked up my keys and he'd stolen my car. So they had sent out, you know, they said, well, we're looking for the car. He has your car. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> I was really mad that he had stolen my car. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, I was very proud car owner. I loved my car. It was my independence. That was my, that was my, like, I, I loved driving. I still love driving. And so the fact that he stole my car was really insulting to me. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else might not have cared, but it, it was really insulting to me. Um, so if you fast forward, we didn't know what to do. Everything was just in chaos. And so that night, um, my friends who I was moving in with her, she lived in a studio apartment. Her apartment manager agreed to extend her lease longer and let us stay. (laughs) So we stayed. I never had to go back to that house again. Um, Somebody, I don't even to this day know who went and like got all my stuff out and brought it to the studio apartment. Um, I'm told that the whole front room of the house was covered in like bloodstains everywhere. Um, so I'm glad that I didn't have to ever go back. Um, I think about that sometimes I think about what that room and that house must've looked like. And all I can remember are those two front rooms of the house. Like, I don't remember what anything else in that house looks like. Um, and it started, I like, I just love the dramaticness of this story because I was always so dramatic and now it was really happening to me and I didn't want it to be happening. 
you know, like right. real life drama was happening. I was like, wait, 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 never mind. It's not supposed to really happen. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how so different it, it is. Raining. It was this really rainy night and there was a knock on the apartment door at like midnight and we opened the door and there was a detective standing there in a wet trench coat with a detective hat on and his little like folder. And I thought this is truly straight out of a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, what is happening? Truly out of a movie. And he said, we have somebody in custody. And my knees went totally weak. And he said, I need you to identify him in this photo lineup. And so he showed me this picture, the, this lineup of pictures. And before he opened it, I was terror. Like my, I was shaking because what if I picked the wrong guy? Like, what if I don't recognize him? I think victims often uh, question themselves. Did it really happen? Did it really happen that way? Um, and I thought, what if, what if I picked the wrong guy? What if I don't recognize him? What if I can't remember? You know, all these what ifs. And he opened it up and it was instantaneous that I pointed to him. Like, without a doubt, that's him. And he just folded it up and he said, thank you very much. He said, that is the man we have in custody. And he was in custody from that point on. So um, one thing for me that might not be similar to other people's assaults experiences is that my perpetrator was in jail from day one. So from that, from that night on, I didn't have to worry about whether he himself was going to find me. Um, And I thought that that should then alleviate all of this fear. I thought, well, if he's gone in jail, then I shouldn't be afraid. Um, But that wasn't the case. Like fear is fear. And so I uh, was still extremely afraid of everybody. It didn't matter what you look like. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter how well I knew you. If you startled me or you got too close to me or you surprised me, my body instantly would go into fight or flight. Um, And usually it was flight. And I would get a, a rush of, a, of adrenaline. Um, and those, those roller coasters of rushes of adrenaline that I had over that probably first couple of months to a year um, are exhausting. Adrenaline is an incredibly powerful hormone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredibly so, powerful. So, so what are so, did you immediately get into therapy? What are some of the ways you worked through yes. it? Yeah. Yes. So I did. I immediately did get into therapy and um, I luckily had like God had placed just an amazing network of people in my life right before this happens. And they were and they were there. And I had for the first time in my life, I actually had a network of people who supported me and who were who loved me unconditionally and who, you know, wanted wanted me to recover and wanted me to be healthy. Um, and I did get into to therapy. It took me a while to find the right therapist. Um, I always tell people that go with your gut instinct. So um, if it doesn't feel like the right fit, find somebody else. And I found an amazing therapist and I saw her um, twice a week for probably a good year. And then we went down to once a week after that. Um, so I, I definitely saw her and a lot of the work that she and I did around was really just around um, validating my feelings and acknowledging that, uh, yes, this had happened. And yes, it was okay to feel the way that I was feeling. Um, because the feel, like I said earlier, the feelings are so intense. And are you judging yourself? You're judging yourself Absolutely. for having these feelings. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Every right. day, every day judging myself. So are you thinking, um, are you thinking like, God, I'm being so dramatic or yes. yeah, I should be over this by now, this or so many worse things happen to other people. I used to think about that all the time. Like this was terrible, but even worse things happen to other people. So why can't I just get over it? <laughs> and were um, any outside voices validating that thought? Or no, 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 I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. No, nobody was like, there weren't very many people that were like, God, you're not over this yet. <laughs> right. I had a lot of people that were very supportive, but I, I will say that I had people that just couldn't show up. So I didn't have anybody who like overtly said anything to me that re-traumatized me in any way. But I was I was surprised at some of the people in my life that when I would reach out just couldn't show up for me. And and that was okay. I I quickly realized like not everybody not everybody knew how to handle this. I didn't know how to handle it, and certainly people in my life didn't know how to handle it. And so if someone wasn't able to show up, that's, that's okay. And um, I feel really blessed that I didn't harbor a lot of resentment towards people who couldn't show up. And I, I think it's because I had enough other people who were like, we're here, you know, um, I didn't spend any time alone. So one of, if we want to talk about like some of the things that really helped me to heal is from the very, very beginning, I was just really honest about what I was feeling and what I needed. And I'd never really been that way in my life at all. And um, that's the thing that the therapist helped me with the most was every day identifying how I was feeling and identifying what I needed and then asking for it. Um, And for me, a lot of that had to do with I just couldn't be alone. I could not physically be by myself. And so So how did you sorry people to be with me. Yeah. Right. I just asked people to be with me. You know? <laughs> right. How did you identify because this is something I talk to people a lot about, right? Go inside, what do you need in this moment? Now ask for it directly. This is something I work with clients on all of the time. And one of the biggest questions I get is like, how? I don't hear myself. <laughs> mm. So mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me it was like identifying what I physically was feeling because my feelings are so visceral, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're just in my body. And I would describe them to people and people would help me identify what that was. So you're right. And in the beginning, I didn't really know what some of these feelings were. You know, I can remember sitting with a friend and and saying, you know, I'm, I'm tingling and I can feel like the blood just coursing through my body and I'm wanting to rock and I'm feeling my forehead furrow, you know, and I'm thinking, terrible thoughts and she was like you're angry (laughs) Mm. oh oh this is what anger is oh okay this is what anger is and then having to ask well then what do I do with it what do I do with anger because one another thing that I quickly became aware of was that there was like I said earlier there was nothing I could do to get around these feelings I was gonna have to go through them I was gonna have to feel them until I was done feeling them And so I had to figure out how to, how to do that. And it's particularly with anger. I asked a lot of people like, what do you do when you're angry? Cause I had never really been angry in that way. And uh, I got a lot of recommendations about like punching, punching bags and screaming into pillows and hitting pillows and chopping up vegetables really 
you know, aggressively mm-hmm. and all of these things. And I was like, that none of that sounds right to me because all of that sounds violent. And I'm, I'm angry because something violent happened to me. And so I don't want to express my anger in a violent way. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so finally someone, I don't even know who recommended it to me was like, I think you should get in your car. I think you should listen to some really angry punk music And I think you should drive over every bridge in Portland and you should scream at the top of your lungs from one end of the bridge to the other. Hmm. And I was like, that sounds like the stupidest idea. (laughs) But it worked. But but at this point, I'm willing to try anything, right? I'm willing. So I did it. I got in the car. I started listening to this angry punk music. And all of a sudden, I started yelling at everybody. My windows were rolled up, thank God. But I started yelling at people on the street, like telling them, pretty much telling them what I would want to say to the man that assaulted me, but just yelling it at strangers on the street. (laughs) And then I would scream across the bridges and it was so cathartic. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. And so for me, that was my way of releasing my anger. Um, And for everybody, you know, everybody's got to find their way. And, and for me, I was able to find it through asking other people, well, what do you do? You know, what do right. you do when you're angry? How do you handle it? The first um, step, though, is is very much the identification of what you're feeling. And I remember, mm-hmm. I remember when I started to do that, um, and that was such a huge turning point in my own recovery from Lyme and and trauma. Was like, what do you feel in this moment? Feeling words, feeling words, and yes, yes. you know, and, don't detach, don't detach, <laughs> right? And only from that. Can you possibly know what you need in the next moment? Right. Um, so I love that this is this is such a theme and that you really let yourself ask for all of the things, including needing to be around people all of the time. And it sounds all like your feelings were so intense that you really didn't have a choice. Like you, you needed to just ask for what you needed or you weren't yeah, going to make and, it through. And that needed – that's – I really see God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Like – I was not prior to this. I was not someone who asked anybody for any help. <laughs> like mm. I was going to get through it on my own. You know, I solved my own problems and it was like all of a sudden in my life, I couldn't even see the boundaries of this problem and I didn't even know where to start. And so I had no uh, other option, but to ask for help, no option. Um, and, you know, identifying all those feelings, it was, was really hard. I also did a lot of writing and I'm not a writer. Right. Um, yeah. I'm we're... not a writer at all. I'm not a journaler. Like <laughs> it's not my, that's not my thing, but I did. That's how I got in touch with some of the other emotions I was having because, you know, after the anger comes a whole lot of, and the fear comes a whole lot of other range of emotions. Um, I was sad. I had, I had a lot of grief um, I had a lot of grief around feeling like I had lost my innocence or feeling like he had stolen something from me. Um, I felt like he had stolen my sense of security and my sense of peace. Um, I used to sort of envision him like in jail holding in his hands like my self-worth and my my security and just putting it under his pillow and going to sleep at night. Oh, Wow. And so I would write about that and I would, I wrote, you know, I wrote poetry about it. I wrote however it needed to come out. I would write about that. Um, And I, and I also started to write him letters. And so I was writing him letters explaining, and they weren't 
they really weren't angry letters. They were more about letters of like needing him to know how I was feeling because around this point, another shift was starting to happen where I realized that I'd had one of my most or the most intimate human experience I'd had to date with a total stranger. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to use the word intimacy earlier because when you had talked about him taking your car, it's so interesting you said that. When you talked about him taking your car uh, and you talked about how annoyed, angry you were that he took your, uh, insulted that you were, that he took your car, (laughs) I could hear, I could hear this almost like familial closeness to him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that Mm -hmm. sounds like you just became so intimate with this person, more intimate than you've been with anybody else in in yep. so many ways. And yep. in the 10 minute period, you know, there's a closeness there that just came out in the way you were talking about the car. So yeah, mm. that's really interesting. And that's one of the things that has haunted me the most. Um, one of the things I think that's been the hardest to accept is, Yes, I have I had I've had this intimate relationship with this person that I've never spoken to <laughs> that knows nothing about me. Um I probably know more about him than he knows about me. Um because I found out a lot about him through the court process that proceeded and back and forth in my own mind about do I want to speak with him again? Do I want to try and see him and you know because people do that. People meet their perpetrators in jail. They reach out to them through letters. I mean, that's, this isn't new. I, I read about um, Pope John Paul who, who met with a man who tried to assassinate him and forgave him. And um, that was a really, really powerful story for me to read about. Um, and I, I often come back to that image of, of the two of them together and, uh, and wonder, you know, is that, is that something that I need? Do I need that? Um, do I need to physically see him again and be in a room with him again? Um, and as of today, the answer is no. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we'll see. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. Um, right. But it is. It's it's a it's a really weird thing. And um, you talked about in the very beginning. You mentioned that um, that it doesn't have power over me. And there was, there was a time in which that power finally shifted where I felt like I took back my self security and my self worth. I grabbed it from under his pillow and I had it back. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't his anymore. He was not dominating me. He wasn't, he, he wasn't in charge. Um, now all of my PTSD symptoms, nothing changed in those, <laughs> like those, those continued to march on in their intensity, <laughs> but there was a definite mind shift of, I am not a victim, I'm a survivor, and you don't have control over me. Amazing. I want to talk about um, another thing you did to get there. So let's take a quick break for the weekly challenge. Welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt. As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. 
the only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. Okay, Megan, tell us about some fear and gratitude. Uh, fear, I feel like fear and gratitude go hand in hand, and uh, fear rules everything in my life. So today, of course, I don't have fears as primal or as deep as I did, you know, 20 years ago, but fear still um, erodes my thoughts and, and can skew my perspective of reality and of my life. And um, the night that I was assaulted, I had a friend recommend to me that I write a list of all of my fears. Um, and, and I did that. And then I called her back and she said, now, you need to write a gratitude list that's twice as long. And I remember thinking, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I have to be grateful for? That's insane. And I just, again, like we talked about earlier, like I had no other choice but to try it because <laughs> I knew I had no other options. And so I did. And and it actually wasn't that difficult to to write a list of things I was grateful for that was twice as long. And what immediately happened was this sense of, overwhelming impending doom started to lift just a little bit. Like I felt like I could have just a little bit of breathing room, Um, a little bit of hope was able to sort of sneak in to all of those traumatic feelings. And I've used that tool numerous times since then. You know, when I feel myself getting anxious, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, if I'm feeling stifled, uh, if I'm feeling overly excited, I will write a list of fears and then write a list of gra- things I'm great- grateful for that is twice as long so that my gratitude is overpowering any kind of anxiety or fear that I'm experiencing. Amazing. You did jump into the work right away and you didn't spend time too much time self-medicating that that part of your life had kind of already passed. You didn't, yes. you know, you really let yourself have what you need and you you got through it in an organic way um, and you didn't fight it so much. So what I, I, I think an important, an important, really important point to bring up here is that um, really early on, one of the things I worked on with my, my therapist around was this idea of acceptance because a lot of, you know, a lot of grief and a lot of trauma for me, like things I could look at in my past that had been drug out was because I was in denial of them. You know, so if I if I'm in denial about something then I can't even possibly begin the recovery process. And so she immediately had started talking to me about um, about acceptance, accepting what had happened. And that made me so angry because I thought that acceptance meant approval. My -hmm. whole life, I thought if I accept something, that means I approve of it. And this woman shifted my whole mindset about that. And said, Megan, acceptance doesn't mean approval at all. It just means that you are making a decision to not fight reality. Right. That you are willing to see reality for what it is. And it is what it is. And nothing's going to change it. And I'm going to move forward. And that was so pivotal for me because I needed to accept exactly where I was at. And it did not mean I was okay with it. I was not. I was not okay with where I was. I was not okay with what had happened. I was not okay with what he had done, but I could, I had to, I had to accept that it had happened and now I needed to move forward. There's and an, I think that's a huge turning point to get to. 
I think it's huge for no matter what's going on in your life, really. <laughs> true, very it's true. For, uh, it's true. I mean, I think it's harder depending on different circumstances, but with extreme illness and with extreme situations like you had, you know, it might be harder, but you still – you need to do that pretty much whatever's going on. And I remember um, Hal Elrod, who's this amazing person, He there's a talk I listened to by him, and he talks about how he was in the hospital from a really serious car accident, and they told him he was never going to walk again. And he was like 20-something, you know. Mm. And uh, he he had learned previously from something at work to – the five-minute rule that he got five minutes to feel bad about it. Five minutes. (laughs) And then he had to accept it and think about what he was going to do next. Mm. And it was – and he had, you know, he had stopped feeling bad. Like, it's different. Of course, you've – the PTSD is one thing. And then – but the acceptance – leads you plants you on the road to recovery without the acceptance and and even if that road yeah even if that road to recovery means right now i need to feel bad about it right Mm -hmm. yeah yes you can you can't you can't begin to move forward until you are in full acceptance of where you are and what's happened yeah now now i can move forward yes it is it's it's terrifying but it's so freeing so freeing. Right. So you um, had the acceptance, you did your fear and gratitude lists, you mm-hmm. had people around you all of the time, you identified your feelings, you asked for what you needed. When you started dating again, was it <laughs> <laughs> was it terrifying? Yes, but not in the way that I think I thought it was going to be. The, for the first and this I would say for the first 5 years afterwards if you didn't know this had happened to me, I was incredibly uncomfortable having a conversation with you because I felt like you didn't really know who I was. Mm. Um, And part of me felt like that was incredibly selfish and (laughs) self-centered, but it was still just such a huge part of what it meant to be me that if I was trying to get to know you and you didn't know this happened, I was just pretending I was being false. I needed you to know this about me before so that we could move forward. And that makes dating really difficult because what, I mean, what are you going to be say, you know, Hey, I really like you. And I need you to know that someone assaulted and almost killed me a few years ago and I'm still traumatized. You know? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It's not, it doesn't lead to like a fun and relaxing start to a dating <laughs> process. <laughs> Um, it didn't, the thing that surprised me was that it didn't change. I didn't have any difficulty. My, my comfortability with sexual intimacy remained to be the same as it was before as it was after. Oh, because as as I said earlier, like I was already uncomfortable with sexual intimacy. Right. So (laughs) it was like, it didn't actually change that much. What, what definitely, definitely, definitely changed is I like oral sex was off the table. Like, don't Mm. even think about it. Don't ask me. God forbid you make a gesture towards that way because you will send me into full adrenaline mode, fight or flight, Mm. you know, like, don't and so I that had to be very clearly established at some point in a dating relationship if there was going to be any kind of intimacy like don't even don't even go there <laughs> right and if you're not okay with that then then that's fine we you know let's move on but um I had to I really had to put that that boundary down for sure 
Um, and they also, like, I also, not just people that I was being intimate with, but people in my life, I needed them to know that they couldn't, um, my neck is a very sensitive area. Mm. So, and it's, and it still is to this day. Like I won't wear a turtleneck. Like I don't wear chokers. Like I don't, don't come and put your arm tightly around my neck, you know, or any of those things. Like, and then when it comes to intimacy, like mm, maybe snuggling up on my neck is not really the best thing to do, you Mm. know, (laughs) because that's not, it's a very sensitive area for me. It's just, and it, I've come to accept that it may always be that way. That's just the way that it is. Were you afraid to simply be alone with a man? No, because I don't think I was ever alone with someone that was a stranger. Like I didn't go out on dates with people that I didn't somehow already know. Right. This is before. Well, yeah, this is before internet dating. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there was no like random, you know, I've never been on a blind date in my life. Um, the times that I would get very uncomfortable is if I ended up walking down a street by myself and there was another man on the street that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I will cross the street. I will duck into a store. I will, you know, I would do all of those kinds of things. Um, so in that sense, yeah. Or being in an elevator, I was very uncomfortable being in an elevator with strange men. Yeah. Um, so I would do things like if the elevator door opened and there was only one man, I'd say something like, oh, I pressed the wrong button and I'd wait for the next elevator. Right. You know? Right. Like, so is that and how? Those are, all things, those are all things I worked through in therapy. She was like, that's okay. You don't have to tell them that you're afraid of them, but you also don't have to get on the elevator. Mm. Like, yeah. You just wait. You just wait for the next one. It's going to be okay. That's what I was wondering. Like, how did you work through all of that stuff? And then, and then you obviously you got married. How long after the uh, incident did you get married? Let's see. Well, I think I met Michael five years afterwards, and then we were married a few years later. Um, and did you guys ever have to work through the way the trauma might have affected your relationship together? Uh, yeah, de- yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't, we didn't do any, we haven't done any sort of formal work as far as therapy or anything like that. It's something that we've, um, talked a great deal about and he, uh, he is amazing. Mm. I'm get choked up. He's amazing. And from day one, he just listened to me. He just listens and he 100% respected any boundary that I put down without question no question, no negotiation, you know, just, okay. I, I accept that. And I understand and, um, has been nothing but supportive mm. of whatever feelings are coming up or whatever, whatever is happening. You know, I mean, there are times still, you know, that I can't take a shower by myself in the house because I can't hear what's going on. I, I always, I can be home alone as long as I can hear what's happening in my house. But if I'm vacuuming or, showering by myself, I get very, very anxious. So, you know, I guess the reality of that is I'm never going to vacuum the house while you're not here. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're never going to come home to a vacuumed house. Right. (laughs) Sure. Um, And he's just, he's just accepted those things. And I feel like we've kind of just looked at them like everybody brings things to the, to a relationship. And it's just about whether you're compatible and can the other person love you unconditionally. Right. You know, no matter how frustrating or impeding those things might be. Right. Um, you know, and he and I have worked through all of the sexual roller coaster, you know, 
Um, and we just talk, you know, we just try, I try so hard to talk, to just talk. Um, and even today I find that really hard. I find it hard because I feel like, oh, I'm bringing it up again. This shouldn't be an issue anymore. Um, and as soon as I hear those voices, you know, I smack them away. You know, <laughs> those are right. Those are the unhealthy voices. Like, no, we'll talk about it again. We will talk about it until we don't need to talk about it anymore. There's um, so much self-love and self-compassion within that practice that's just, you know, letting yourself have the experience. I really relate to that sort of self-judgment, you know, no, this should be done. This should be over. Yes. I shouldn't talk. I, yes. I hear my thoughts. I hear they, what I say. They don't want to hear it anymore. They're going to, he's going to leave me if I keep talking about it. Right. He's going to get annoyed. He's going to think I'm weak. He's going to, you know, all these assumptions about what other people were going to think. And I definitely had those thoughts in the beginning too, when I was asking people for help. You know, like, can you come sleep on my couch again? You know, right. <laughs> what are you going to think about me? And I heard stories later on, though, that were amazing about, you know, I had a friend that came and he would sleep on my couch every night and I felt terrible about it. I was like, gosh, I'm putting this guy out. You know, he's he's a friend. It was funny that it was a guy. You know, I, was, I felt comfortable with a guy sleeping on my couch. But he would he would come and he would just sleep on the couch at night. He'd just be there. And I found out years later that he was going through a really rough time and being at my house was incredibly healing for him. Mm. I had no idea. I didn't know, you know, here I was that I thought, you know, I was taking advantage of him. Right. He was getting what he needed to, you know, and so having that perspective of understanding that if I ask for something, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm taking something from somebody else. Right, right. I love that. Which is huge, because I always thought I'm burdening somebody, I'm burdening them, I'm burdening them, I'm burdening them. And that just isn't always the, I mean, sometimes you can burden people, but that's just not always the case, you know? Absolutely. That's such a big part. That's such a big part of, of healing. And it's true. People can say no. People can take care of themselves, you know, and, and accepting that and then being able to accept when people say no, like the people that couldn't show up, you know, and I respect that. I respect if you say no, because I don't want you to show up if you can't. I don't want you to say yes if you can't actually do it, you know? <laughs> totally. So, yeah. Um, I really respect people who, who are able to set their own boundaries around that. And, you know, I, I this keeps coming into my mind, so we'll just share it here too, is that I very distinctly remember the first time that I was alone in my house afterwards. It was about mm, six weeks later and the evening was coming. My roommate was out. I thought about calling that guy again, you know, the friends, Evan, to say, hey, can you come sleep on my couch? And I don't know what happened. I don't know if he said he couldn't or if I didn't call him. I don't remember. I ended up in my house by myself. And I remember thinking, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can be in my house by myself. I had everything turned off so I could hear everything that was going on. And I don't know how long it was before I heard someone pounding on the back door. Oh my God. Someone, sorry, let me start again. They were not, someone knocked on the front door and I went and I peeked out the window and it wasn't someone that I knew. So of course my knees start going weak, you know, I'm like, just don't answer the door. Just pretend like you're not home. Right. Fair enough. Starts banging on the back door, starts kicking on the back door. (laughs) So he's trying to kick the back door down and I get on the phone and I call 911 and I'm just screaming into the phone. It's happening again. It's happening again. And the one poor 911 woman was like, what's happening? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, love that, I love that I can laugh at this stuff. Now. I, you know, <laughs> it's just it is 
it's just life. This is just what happens, you know? And things, I think things don't happen to me. They just happen. Right. It just happens to happen that way. Anyway, so I'm screaming on the phone. He must have heard me screaming on the phone. She was like, you need to get out of the house. I said, okay. I threw the front door open and I run down my front steps just as he comes running around from the back and runs down the lawn. And we sort of meet on the sidewalk and look at each other and both take off in opposite directions. <laughs> oh my God. He, he had no idea I was home. So I terrified him, you know, not nearly as much as he scared me, but I you know, he thought the house, the house had been abandoned for so long since at, before we moved in. So he, I think he just thought that it was, no one was home, you know, so he was someone trying to break in. But again, I was oh. left there thinking like, what? How, how does this happen? How yeah. does this happen twice to one person? And I started calling people and no one was answering their phones. I was like, what, do, what do I do with this? Again, I just felt so overwhelmed. Like, what do I do with this? And I finally got a hold of a friend and she was like, well, I'm going out to the club, but you can come with me. And I thought, okay. <laughs> so, it was more, it was more important to me that I'd be with someone than by myself. So I went out to the club that night and was just in a total day. I mean, just in a daze. like how does this happen? So again, it was another long time before I was able to physically be by myself well yeah Um, yeah (laughs) I would would let people know you know okay I'm gonna be by myself so if you if I call can you answer the phone (laughs) right right you know I would talk to people I would give myself to do tasks to do if I was by myself somewhere like okay I'm gonna do you know I'm gonna do fold this load of laundry and then maybe I'll go somewhere or call somebody like I would sort of break the time up for myself keeping myself occupied with things to do right um And it just takes time. So So what would you say, what would you say to somebody who is, you know, dealing with this kind of trauma today and it's new for them or it's not new for them? I would, I would want them to know that there is hope. There is absolute hope and healing on the other side, but you have to walk through it. Mm -hmm. There's no magic jump. There's no magic tunnel to, you know, bypass the healing process, which is what I really wanted, that there is hope and that you're not alone. Um, one of the things I love about this podcast is that we're all sharing these stories. I, I remember going to the library, I don't know, sometime within that first year and even talking to a librarian and trying to find memoir or something, anything, anything that I could read that was my story that I could identify with to know that I wasn't the only person that had experienced this. Cause again, this is like the beginning of the internet era. So not everything's everywhere. Right. You know, I couldn't sit down and Google rape survival, you know, right. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And so I went to the library cause that's where you went and there wasn't anything. We couldn't find anything. I couldn't find stories about this. Um, and ironically enough, I've been doing some research lately about forgiveness and these big research studies around forgiveness. Guess when they started 1998, which is the year I was assaulted. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, so that instinct was right that there wasn't even a body of research around how to not only heal, but how to forgive. And is forgiveness really a thing? Is it a physical thing? Is it a mental thing? Um, and there's now this incredible body of, cert- of research about all of the benefits and the scientific nature of the act of forgiveness. Which you have. Yes. You have yes. forgiven. I have forgiven. I have absolutely forgiven. 
And I don't, couldn't tell you the day that it happens. I couldn't tell you what exactly I did that made that happen. Um, but I think it's through the process of healing and that process of acceptance and a whole lot of prayer. Yeah. A whole lot of prayer to, you know, help me to not carry this burden anymore. Mm. Um, it wasn't hurting him. So I needed to let go of it so that it wasn't hurting me anymore. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and I definitely, I, I only remember in retrospect thinking, you know, what was ha- what happened is I was actually sharing my story and afterwards someone said to me, it sounds to me like you've forgiven him. And I instantly started bawling and was like, yeah, yeah, I have, mm-hmm. I have. I didn't even realize that I had done it, but yes, I have. And that was called into question this last year for sure, because he was released this spring from jail. And I was really concerned. And of course, that was a date that had loomed in my mind for 20 years. Um, you know, when, what's it going to be like when he's no longer behind bars? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I was afraid of is that he was going to be released and I was going to re-experience the trauma or re-experience the anger and I was going to realize that I have been um, in denial and that I, I really haven't forgiven him. I think, I think this is the Facebook post that you read. Like, I, I can't believe that morning I woke up and truly I felt free. Right. I felt free. I felt like I didn't have to worry about when that date was coming anymore. And I have to worry about what, what it was going to feel like. And my thoughts really turned to him and and thinking like his journey is just now beginning. Mm. Like I, I can't even imagine what it's like to try and make that transition out of jail. Um, I can tell you right now that he's already been rejailed um, and it's back out again. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know all of the details, but transitioning out of jail for no matter what it is that you were in jail for transitioning out of jail is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Right. And there's not a lot. He doesn't have the supports that I had. Right. You know, I think and this is leading me to also think that, you know, a huge part of forgiveness is also empathy. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be able to see the person that you're forgiving as a human being. And it doesn't mean that what he did to me was right at all. What he did was not right. Um, What he did to all the women before me was not right. I mean, he had a report record that went all the way back to the year I was born. Like, wow. He, it was not right, but he's also a human being right. and he has dignity. He is, you know, and he might not be honoring his own human dignity, but I can honor his dignity. Right. Um, oh, Megan, thank you so much. This was just <laughs> amazing. And, um, Anyone who's listening, please share this with somebody who you think needs it. And if you want to reach out to Megan, you can reach out to me first. And, yes, that was, yeah, perfect. And, and I will put you guys in touch. Um, and is there anything else you want to say? I don't think so. I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to, to have shared this. And I just, I really, really want people to know that they're not alone in this journey. And that's what your podcast does. It brings us all together to let us know that we're not alone in this healing journey. Mm, Amazing. Thank you so much for bravely sharing your story and putting it all out there on the line. I think it will help a lot of people. And guys, go love on your fellow humans, please, because we all need it. Show up for your friends. (laughs) Um, And we'll see you all next week. Bye.
Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.